on the most spiritual level, I love being Mormon. Mm-hmm. I think it's so beautiful, and there are things about like some of the deepest forgiveness and unconditional love, and yeah. just caring about people that I love. But on a cultural level, I feel a lot of times in my heart that I'm failing. My name is Danielle, and this is Godcast. This week, I talked to Caitlin about what it's like to grow up Mormon. If you've ever had any questions about Mormonism, polygamy, and the like, this is a good place to start. But I'd say if you don't have any questions about Mormonism, if you know all that there is to know about Mormons, their culture, and beliefs, um, Caitlin's story and her wisdom are still well worth your time. She is a peace builder. Um, her honesty, knowledge, and genuine spirit made this the kind of conversation I could have kept going for an ungodly amount of time. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This conversation was one of my favorites to have, so I cannot wait for you to listen. So... I am curious, what is your first memory of growing up Mormon? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> being born? <laughs> something that you're just born into. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, it's, I don't, hmm. it's such a way of life. Mm. And I really started to figure that out as I started to figure myself out more as I've gotten older, how much of a way of life it is, but probably the earliest memory I probably have is, oh, probably when I got caught doing something naughty. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's not okay. (laughs) Like being very much like, we don't do that. (laughs) What was it? Um, it was, it's actually kind of strange. I remember my brother, my friends and I were playing Barbies and we didn't, we, we had the Ken and Barbie doll naked laying together. (laughs) (laughs) And it was very much, my brother was like, mom. (laughs) And I was like, what do I do? (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. I love that. um, just because we didn't talk about that, it was like very taboo. We didn't really talk about sex. That was but it. you knew what sex was at a young age. Um, uh, probably just what I thought it was from TV, okay. and my friends were like, "Yeah, like this is a baby." Yeah, well, because I wouldn't have known as a kid. I would have been like, "You mean the storks come and like deliver them?" I wouldn't have been like, <laughs> "Right, right." These come from men and women. Yeah, I wouldn't have known no. that. <laughs> Somehow I picked it up along the way. Yeah. That's so funny. I know. Pretty I love good. That. <laughs> but so would you say that like your first memory of being Mormon is basically from birth? Um, can you expand on that a little bit just yeah, in like your culture? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so being Mormon, I've come to find is really a whole cultural worldview, especially I've, in the many people I've talked to from all over the world. It, 
is different depending on where you grew up Mormon, but I grew up Mormon in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And Idaho and Utah are kind of known as main hubs mm-hmm. of Mormonism, southeastern Idaho, mm-hmm. actually. And it was just kind of the norm. Everyone around you went to church for three hours a three week. Hours? Mm-hmm, three hours. Wow. Church is always three hours, one hour for sacrament meeting, one hour for Sunday school, and then one hour where the men and the women separate. In primary, they're together up until they're 12, and then men and women separate once you turn 12. And then do each does each like group of men and women have a different sort of pastoral leader, or are they like meeting in small groups? Um, no, they each have a different leader. So the whole congregation is organized. It's actually a really... Uh, well thought out organization. It's very like organizational. <laughs> um, so the whole congregation, male, female, they have a bishop and his counselors. Mm-hmm. And the females have a Relief Society president. So it's like a tier, right? Relief Society president, which is a female mm-hmm. leader and her counselors. Okay. And then the men have the elders quorum president and his counselors and so that's for the older people but it's just broken down and trickles down it's like a hierarchy yeah 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. and so then so okay so first hour is sacramental meeting sacrament meeting sacrament meeting so what um sacraments are part of mormonism yeah so um so funny hearing it asked that way because in my worldview it was like sacrament was only a Mormon thing, but oh. no, <laughs> that's <laughs> so funny. funny. Just like the shift. Um, yeah. So the main sacrament is what we call just the sacrament, okay. and it's the bread and the water. Yeah. And they're symbolic of Christ's body and Christ's blood, and um, so how there's no. Yeah, so it would make sense. There's no wine. There's no grape juice. It's water instead. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's water and bread. And um, the focus of that is a lot of of emphasis in Mormonism for people who are there for more of a spiritual reason than just a cultural reason is focusing on the sacrament meeting and really creating this connection with your Savior and forgiving yourself for the things you've done wrong in the week and giving yourself a new beginning each mm-hmm. week. So a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm not going to go to all three hours. I'll just go to sacrament because it's the most important, okay. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> so that's kind of, uh, it's the most highly regarded okay. meeting. That's very fascinating to me because I think one of my questions was about how Mormons view other Christians typically, because mm-hmm. I know like I grew up in a really non-denominational Protestant setting. And it was kind of like, we're the Christians, Catholics might count sometimes depending on who you ask. And then Mormons are like something different was mm-hmm. like sort of the <laughs> schema I <Totally>. feel. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'm just curious about how within like your Mormon community, other kinds of Christianity were viewed? Well, honestly, it would depend on 
if you're asking someone like culturally or spiritually um and maybe that's not the best way to frame it no that makes sense yeah um i think that on on a more spiritual level and like the prophet the we've had different prophets of our church throughout the years since joseph smith was the restored prophet in the 1840s um they I didn't realize that. Talked... Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So we have a leader of the worldwide church uh-huh. right now. Um, I'm a little bit out of the loop. And if anyone Mormon is listening to this, <laughs> because I was this way before, where if somebody said something a little off, I'd be like, oh, their credibility is gone. So hopefully. I okay. Recently, it was Elder Monson, Prophet President Monson, and he passed away. And now it's President Nelson. I'm near positive. Okay. Um, So are presidents always the prophet? Is that? Yes. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Yep. But they also have 12 apostles and mm -hmm, 12 modern day apostles. And twice a year, they all speak. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's like this. I could talk to you for hours about all of this, I'm sure. But, um, but your question, what was your question? <laughs> it was about how Mormons view other Christians. Okay, so yeah. always there's, almost always there's a feeling of love from the higher-ups in the church of like, these are our fellow Christian brothers and sisters. We fellowship them. We love them. We are unified in this let's focus on our commonality and not our differences mm-hmm. um but when it comes to a small town and a lot a higher mormon population and a smaller other christian denomination populations there can often be tension or conflict or um a feeling just like with most religions right this feeling of tension yeah. of groups the minority and the majority mm-hmm. and so at times <clears throat> I think maybe there's a bit of a privilege in being Mormon and a blindness to the humanity of other people's beliefs and way of thinking in highly populated Mormon areas right mm. which I would venture I guess is true of like any religious um group <laughs> yeah. I felt that I felt that way growing up in a predominantly like evangelical Christian environment, like there was a benefit to being that way Mm -hmm. (laughs) and some tension. And especially within evangelicalism, like there's a pretty big impetus to convert other people was a big part of our religion. Um, And so that was another question I wanted to just sort of ask about the mission. Um, So it's my understanding that only men go on the mission. Is that correct? Um, so it's actually been evolving over the years. Cool. So, yeah, so probably I can't really put a date on it, but I can give you in my lifetime what I've noticed. So when I was younger, uh, the cultural expectation or excuse me, no, I think it was like more of a divine, like the prophet has stated expectation that all worthy men should serve a mission. Okay. And it's a two-year mission, and um, they don't choose where they go. The prophet and the quorum of the 12, there's like they go through and they pick where people go. That was what I was taught, right? Mm -hmm. Um, On the rare occasion, you would have sister missionaries. 
and they were only allowed to go when they were older then. So uh, I think the age for missionaries was 19 for men Mm -hmm. and 21 for women. But within the past couple of years, they shifted it and men can go at the age of 18 now. Mm -hmm. And women, I think, can go at the age of 19. But they've kept it intentionally that the women are a little bit older than the men. I think I'm not going to get into why I think that. but And I'm sure they've been specific reasons. But it's expected that men go. Okay. It's optional for women to go. Okay. And mm-hmm. are those missions, to, are those mostly like a sort of evangelical converting people focus or are they more based on doing works in communities to help that community mm-hmm. thrive? That's like the really tough part. Um, at the honest, like heart of it, it's really for conversion sake. Mm-hmm. I believe that um, most of the people who I talked to who had a deep and spiritual experience on their mission. Uh, They come back and they usually speak of, not all, but a good number of them speak about how it was just about learning to love people. Wow. And not, it's not about just results, but the mission is very much set up in a way that it's like tracking numbers, how many people have you contacted today? You know, it's very organized Mm -hmm. and the expectations for the uh, missionaries are very set and they're, they're looked over or controlled by a mission president, depending on the area. So each area has a mission president that the missionaries look to. The mission president then helps organize and make decisions. explain to me like the first time you heard about or thought about polygamy in the context of Mormonism? Um, I don't think I can pinpoint a first time, but I do remember when I was around, probably around 12 years old, starting to experience some confusion and dissonance Mm. within myself of like, but, excuse me, but wait, there's I'm hearing this and I thought we believe this, Mm -hmm. but then people are also saying there's this, right? Right. Um, With the polygamy thing for me, it was very much something that you were just invited to blindly have faith that it's just different now and we don't believe that now. And Mm. um, I've, I've gone through phases of just praying endlessly to God being like, what's that about, (laughs) you know? And then also phases of being like, no, like on a very practical level, that makes sense in which like (laughs) some people are like, what? (laughs) Um, My sister, she has a really funny sense of humor. She's not Mormon anymore, but she lives in Southern Utah Mm -hmm. and she'll always joke when she's just stressed and overwhelmed with her kids. And I should tell you, there's, a number of polygamists that live in Southern Utah still who are still practicing polygamy. And she'll always joke. She'll be like, I just need sister wives. If I just (laughs) with all of these kids and all of this, like all of that. And so 
it's been nice to like be able to develop a sense of humor about it. Um, But I think that the number, the number, I'm in a weird place of changes Mm -hmm. right now. So um, I may answer this totally different in 10 years from now, but my first experience with it, there was a lot of dissonance and then there was a lot of, well, like, I just trust how things are now. I'm going to mm-hmm. trust it. And so just move I have forward. a quick clarifying question, actually. I yeah. maybe should have started with, um, is there like a scriptural scriptural text that talks about polygamy? Like, or yeah. is it just like a cultural thing that used to happen? Like, is there a precedent within the structures of the religion for it? You know, okay, that's a really good question. Um, there... I'll try to break down really quickly. There's no set main scriptural text. Like in the Book of Mormon, there's nothing that says polygamy is a theme. Yeah. In the Doctrine and Covenants, which is like the scripture written by Joseph Smith, mm-hmm. um, I don't remember seeing the word polygamy in there anywhere. Can I pause you? There's a dog barking. Can you hear it? Yeah. 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 I'm going to go see... I can put her away. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. So we were talking about polygamy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you were saying that in the Book of Mormon and in the Covenants and... And the Articles of Faith. Yeah, you don't remember so seeing those, Yeah, yeah. Pearl of Great Price. I don't remember reading the word polygamy ever. Um, but, and those are the main texts that I grew up with and carried around, right? We always had in, I think it was called like a quad. <laughs> it was like all in one. It was the Bible, um, King James Version, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, articles of faith. And all of these were like our main texts. Those were our scriptures. We carry them around. It's what we read. And so, um, in those main ones, I don't remember ever hearing polygamy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was brought up and talked about as a part of church history. Okay. Um, and then I had stopped you in the middle of you explaining where you were at now with yeah that. yeah um I definitely am at a point where I want to educate myself more on church history mm-hmm. and read more about what the polygamy was like um because I like educating myself yeah. instead of I don't know making assumptions or getting angry or tied one way or another, Mm -hmm. right? I want to understand. And another big thing that I've noticed is being, I lived in Southern Utah for, for about a year before I moved to Boston for Mm -hmm. school. Yeah. And I would run into polygamous families at the grocery store or, you know, and they're dressed very differently and, you would see the men always driving men, two men in the front seat for the sake of, and women and children in the back seats, which was always interesting to me, just those little things you pick up on and notice. And, um, 
it took me back to my undergrad when we were studying different cultures and our professors were really trying to help us unpack the fact that some people do things really differently in the sense of like, I'm going to probably mess this up, but like female genital mutilation, Mm. right? And um, the core takeaway from my classes then for myself was there are these things that are happening and some of them may be like really upsetting to me, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, But a question I have to ask myself is who am I to walk in and tell these people who are living a certain way, like that they're wrong. Right. And it's just, it comes down to this idea of understanding people's culture and worldview and also educating people to, to understand and enable them to know they have a choice. Mm. And so a lot of times I would think about like myself and my religion and these women in their polygamous practice of the religion. And I'd ask myself, well, do, do we feel like we have a choice? Right. right. And I try to find that common ground. And I think that's what started to shift things for me is looking at and saying, I'm no, if I don't feel like I have a choice within my own faith, I'm no different than these polygamist mm. women. And that's when I started trying to be a lot more conscious about what I wanted and mm. what my choices were. And also to not judge the people who are on their journey. And just hope and pray they have choice. Mm. So did you feel like there were certain choices you didn't have being a woman within Mormonism? Um, my, my gut answer is yes, definitely. Um, I don't know. Oh my gosh, could I name them though? Do I know what they yeah. are? Um, off the top of my head, no. And maybe... Mm. Maybe it's, I think that there were things that I knew I didn't have a choice with in Mormonism. Actually, that's actually really wrong. I always had a choice, but I cared a lot about cultural pressure mm. and what was expected of me, right? Yeah. They, and I think culturally in highly populated Mormon areas, people can get away from understanding how important choice is Mm. and that mistakes are okay Mm. and that we learn and instead focus on like, like there's still, I'm digressing a little, but well, you edit, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm still like, I still feel a little bit of like un unexpected. I didn't know I had this sadness in my heart, but this sadness in my heart that I'm 28, I'm not married. Um, I don't have any kids. Mm. Um, I don't, I'm not a stay at home mom. I don't have a husband with a job, um, that's helping provide for me. Uh, I wear tank tops instead of like more modest clothes. Mm. Um, I got a tattoo, I tried alcohol, like all of these things that have happened within the past year that really have um, been a huge diversion Hmm. from what I grew up in the standards and the things 
that like I didn't try alcohol till I was 28. Uh-huh. <laughs> First time trying alcohol, <laughs> you know, because like no, like you're more right. you don't do that, right? And um, it's mm. just it's really messy and it's yeah. really interesting because on the most spiritual level, I love being Mormon. Mm-hmm. I think it's so beautiful and there are things about like some of the deepest forgiveness and unconditional love and yeah. just caring about people that I love. But on a cultural level, which a lot of people don't really like the culture mm. level of it, I feel a lot of times in my heart that I'm failing mm. um, because it was such a cut and dry expectation of the norm I've started to notice that the norm and standard is maybe less about having a bunch of kids, but it's more about having a successful husband Mm. and a really beautiful wife who's all put together and skinny and crafts and Mm. (laughs) these beautiful things and Instagrams and has a blog. (laughs) Yeah, I, I read an article last year, actually in a lure called why so many of your favorite beauty personalities are Mormon. It's true. And in the, I wanted to ask you about some things that the article claimed because it said it talked actually a lot about this tension within Mormonism between being told your appearance represents like the church and the whole, (laughs) the whole um, religion, but also this like value of being modest um, and then it also had the stat that Salt Lake City has more plastic surgeons per capita than Los Angeles, um, which was so surprising to me. And yeah, so I just wondered if you could shed some light on that and if that feels accurate to your um, experience. Yeah, to me, it does feel accurate. Definitely. And I think that there's a lot of pressure because when there's really high standards, there's pressure to meet them, right? Right. And uh, there's a lot of pressure to be a lot of things within Mormonism. And which is tragic in a lot of ways, because I think that um, referencing like Christ and the Bible and Sadducees and Pharisees, I think sometimes we lose the true heart of Christianity Uh, which is like beauty and the broken things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But there's this tension. There's a, for me, at least, there's been a major tension of, and I've watched other people who don't quite fit that mold, but have really believed and played into the mold the best they could and mm. how it's like a constant feeling of failure and mm. disappointment. And I think that's cultural, 100%. And I also know, like, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's important to me, so I'm going to say it. Um, Please do. (laughs) So within the faith, there's the word of wisdom, Uh which is, like, the, the scripture, the doctrine that talks about, like, don't use tobacco, don't 
you know, don't do these things, do these things. And if you read the actual text, it's really interesting. It's talking about all things in moderation and don't eat too much meat. And um, there are good herbs for you. And, you know, just very beautiful, but it's become interpreted. Um, oh, it also, it only says no hot drinks, right? Don't have hot drinks. But um, it's been really interesting to watch how culture and modern day prophets, I imagine, shape that because... Um, they're the voice for the people now. Right. And things shift with them, even though we follow the scripture, right? Um, but just to see how, if you're, I should back up a little bit. If you're not, one of the questions you get interviewed with, with the bishop, if you want to go to the temple, and the temple is like a holy place where you get to be close to God. That's the and you way. have to interview with your bishop at your home congregation to go. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions, there's like a set of like, I think like maybe nine questions that everyone gets, no matter who you are, you get this. And one of the questions is, do you follow or obey the word of wisdom? Right. And I think one of the hardest things in hindsight for me was, um, this idea of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And what I mean by that is when I was younger, it was like, yeah, I don't drink. Um, I don't drink coffee. Um, I don't like, uh, I don't do drugs. Like what else can I say? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. But, um, I had a really bad eating disorder Mm. and, but because it wasn't, because the heart of the principle and the doctrine wasn't taught to me or excuse me, it just, I think we're just human. And we like, we're teaching in Sunday school. We're like, boom, boom, boom. Here are the points. Like we get lazy and the heart of it was never taught to me. So there I am going and attending these things when I'm really not taking care of my body, Mm -hmm. right. Taking care of like, taking part of this communion with God when I'm at the heart of it, not taking care of my body. But if I were to be asked in a, like, and I had no dissonance about that, but if I were to go to an interview now and ask, do you keep the word of wisdom? I would know blatantly no, because I had alcohol like a week ago. (laughs) I tried alcohol and, um, and that's it. Right. Mm. And so it's this weird set of like, I don't want to use the word weird, but it's, it reminds me of like, um, and I don't know. It reminds me of like Orthodox Judaism with like very set, like there, there are tastes of that with like, there are these very set things we do and don't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also people really hungry for the underlying spirit of that and kind of understanding where the line is. Mm. Right. So much of that resonates with me. (laughs) Um, I'm curious. So would you feel like um, having had confronted your eating disorder that, and even if you have had alcohol and have done these other things, so would you feel like you are more attuned to the spirit of, um, what is it, the words of wisdom? Yeah. Even if like technically you're not maybe checking those boxes. So I am trying 
really hard to shift that way. Yeah. Um, I was like raised a perfectionist, right? right? I always call myself a recovering perfectionist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so I'm trying really hard to understand the heart of things and to be more compassionate towards myself. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting because I'm in such a place with the church right now that I can envision myself five years ago, listening to me say this right now and immediately me becoming tense and thinking this person's a little Mm. deceived, Mm. even if I could love this person. Right. And even if I could like look for the best, I'd be like, no, like that's not the rules. That's not okay. That's not right. And so it's funny running into myself yeah. Because I will say things to people and have these conversations with my friends who are really still actively Mormon. And, um, and I have no ex- expectation for them to empathize with anything I'm saying. And I tell them that I'm like, look, like I would be, it would be so out of my like worldview, like cultural frame to hear this. And it, it's weird to have myself saying these things, Hmm. but it's just how I've expanded for myself and grown. Hmm. It's not that I'm right or wrong, but it's a really, really weird position to be in. Totally. So is that how you, (laughs) do you feel like you're able to maintain those friendships with the spirit of authenticity by sort of like saying that, like saying, I'm going to share these things, but I don't expect you to. Yeah. 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 Very much. Um, And it's been an interesting transition in having friends as I'm slowly like feeling I can share certain things with friends. It's been interesting having um, those conversations. Would you say that most of your friends are Mormon or not Mormon at this point in your life? I would say most are Mormon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe like 60, 40. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Because I, well, I just had such a hard time when I was moving away from this like really evangelical Christian belief, maintaining those friendships with people who still held to that. And Mm -hmm. I would say that I have a lot less Christian friends than non-Christian friends now. And so it's really interesting. I part of me wishes we had this conversation like four years ago when I started to really struggle to have those friendships. It would have maybe been helpful because I I was just expecting everyone to understand and to get it, and then they couldn't. And it's hard. I don't know. Yeah. At least for me, it has been really hard to have friends speak to me from what feels like a past self almost, and one that I'm trying that I feel like I'm disappointing. Like I feel like I'm disappointing my past self. And so I don't want to encounter her. Yes. (laughs) I resonate with a lot of what you're saying. And I think the only difference is I'm really stubborn. (laughs) I'm like, no, I will not be disappointed in her. She will be reconciled, (laughs) you know? And, um, it's been, but it has not been easy. I think that Um, Even just two weeks ago, there was a guy that I really have liked for a few years. We're really good friends. And I've always thought 
like gosh like he would be a fun one to like marry he would be a fun one to like start a life with right yeah and it's heart-wrenching knowing that like just having the honest conversation of like who I have become and asking him will you please still love me Mm. and him say of course you know like of course we'll still be friends but also knowing that if I were in his shoes and if I were him and he were me and if we were in each other's places of life that I would know in my heart that I would never marry that person Mm. because I wanted to marry someone who could go to the temple with me and who could get married in the temple with me because Mm. that's something we're taught and cherished all growing up it's like the main goal is to get with your spouse to the temple and to mm. get married and filled for eternity in the temple, which it's this beautiful, just sacred ceremony. But I've, in recent years, I just haven't felt I could fit that or the, it just didn't feel like it belonged with my life. Mm. And um, so it's really heartbreaking to sit through and to know like because of my choices and because of his choices, both of which are respected, like nothing will ever happen mm. between us. And, um, and I don't think he'll ever, unless he listens to this, he'll never <laughs> know that I've had this thought, you know, yeah. he'll never hear that process. And because I won't even ask him huh. to try to reconcile something like that or hey would you still want to date me (laughs) even though I'm so different Mm. we've been talking for almost an hour and I feel like I could talk to you for two more same with you so um I, but I do, I just want to ask you one more question and hopefully it's relatively quick. Um, but I'm curious about who your most important spiritual teachers have been throughout your life, either within or outside Mm. of Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Um, a big one for me was the prophet David O. McKay, Mm -hmm. um, because he was the one who prophesied that BYU Hawaii would have people coming and going from it who cared deeply about peace and would try to like promote peace internationally. And that's what got that whole program started um, through my professor, uh, Chad Ford. And so um, another, another one has been my professor. He's been a really helpful spiritual teacher to me. And Martin Luther King Jr., very, very much so when it comes to how to love people mm. unconditionally. Um, his book, Strength to Love, yeah. well, it's his speeches converted to text is just right. mind-blowing. Um, but a big one for me also is uh, Glennon Doyle Melton Wombatch, I think is maybe her, her new married name now. Um, and I'm still trying to like unpack a lot of what I've learned from her, but she's very much focused on the heart of the matter. 
and compassion Mm. and she doesn't and she has a sense of humor and doesn't over intellectualize things and I love it like and that is wisdom right there right to keep it simple she can make it funny and it gets to the heart of things Mm. is there a book by her that you could recommend yeah um so the book by Glennon Doyle that I love is Carry On Warrior okay and it's called yeah The power of embracing your beautiful, messy life or something like that. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really do have, I just have to like kind of cut myself off (laughs) because I'm so I, but I truly feel like I've learned a lot about you, but also from you, even in this hour of talking. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into Godcast. This episode was produced by me, Danielle Isbell. Special thanks to Mason Pasha for the lovely theme music. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Godcast underscore podcast and to like our page on Facebook at The Godcast Podcast. You can follow us on both iTunes and Spotify and let me know if you want Godcast on any other streaming service. Thanks so much.